0: Hey, friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful superfans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. AI devices are being used to deceive
2: people. Artificial intelligence. It could play a major role in the 2024 election. It seems artificial intelligence is everywhere.
3: Prime minister saying something inappropriate? That'll take me two minutes to do.
1: Deep fakes go deeper. How AI dupes voters and how to push back. That's coming up on Day 6 Today. The Diplomacy of Comedy.
0: You know, they want it to be talked about. They want to hear material on it.
1: A Palestinian comic unites the crowd with laughter. The art world's modern giant. Every painting is an experiment in form, experiment in color. Mark Rothko's son on his dad's life, work, and legacy. And when you're financially strapped and you
2: say it out loud. You know what you can and you can't afford. The upside of
1: lifting the veil on personal finances. All today on Day 6, the underfunded and oversharing edition.
4: Republicans have been trying to push nonpartisan and Democratic voters to participate in their primary. What a bunch of malarkey. We know the value of
1: voting Democratic when our votes count. It's important that you save your vote for the November election. That's part of an automated message that went out to some people in New Hampshire last weekend. It's the voice of U.S. President Joe Biden discouraging voting in the primaries. He didn't actually say that. It's likely AI generated, making it one of the first major incidents of AI being used to suppress voting in the 2024 American presidential election. And with a long campaign ahead, it likely won't be the last. Hani Fareed is a professor at UC Berkeley who studies digital propaganda and misinformation. Hani, welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you. Listening to the robo call that New Hampshire residents got last weekend, does the word malarkey make it more or less convincing to you?
3: I think it makes it more convincing. I think what was in fact clever about that was that there were aspects of the speech that were very much Joe Biden, and and I don't think I've ever heard anybody else use the word malarkey. And if you talk to voters who received that call, many of them said, I didn't think twice. I thought it was, you know, Joe Biden's recorded voice. Um, Hmm. And so I think it was a clear sign of things to come and the the possible effectiveness of this technology to disrupt our democracies.
1: But what do you hear in it as as a professional? What do you hear when you listen to that that makes you suspicious?
3: Right now, the generative AI audio tends to have very specific cadence, and you don't get a lot of the ums, the ahs, the n- you know that kind of thing that you would normally get. Now, six months from now, they may fix that cadence. That actually may be better, and we'll have to look for other artifacts. Right. But in addition t- to listening, we also, have, of course, have computational models that analyze these audio to determine if they're real or not.
1: Let's talk about who actually has access to the technology because AI has developed very quickly. It's, it's developing as we speak. How easy is it for anyone to yeah. make fake AI-generated content impersonating a politician's voice yeah. or image? Yeah.
3: Well, if you have $5 a month, you can do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are web services that you can sign up for for $5 a month. And uh, you can upload anybody's audio uh, anywhere between 60 to 90 seconds. You click a box that says you have permission to use their voice and you wait maybe 60 seconds. It'll clone their voice and then you type and but you clicking, type whatever. clicking
1: that box. You, you yes. don't have permission to use Joe Biden's
3: voice. You, you absolutely 100% do not. And that's sort of when we should talk about that. Why a service would be created that would allow u- universal access to clone anybody's voice and then have no guardrails. So there's no semantic guardrails that say, well, you, know, you probably shouldn't get the president of the United States to say this, or mm-hmm. you shouldn't be able to create uh, audio that is clear financial scams or frauds and so on and so forth. But there are no guardrails.
1: Th- then what are the burdens that should be placed on? Let- let's talk about the technology yeah. companies first. OpenAI, the company behind chat, GPT. Yeah. published new policies last week and they said they're not going to allow yeah. their technology to be used in campaigning or or in the spreading of misinformation during elections yeah how effective do you think their policy is do you think that's enough
3: well i think it's a good start but there's a couple of things you have to think about first of all there are some 70 elections this coming year with two billion people voting worldwide is open ai really going to be able to monitor 2 billion people voting and how their technology is being used in in hundreds of different languages. Mm -hmm. Number two is there's a lot of tech companies out there, and there are plenty of services out there that are designed for nefarious purposes. And so we're only as good as the lowest common denominator here. Mm -hmm. Then then
1: should there be regulatory barriers? Should there be laws? I mean, it it feels like they would have to be pretty effective in order for them to go after stuff that, that, that spreads as quickly as it does in social media.
3: Yeah, and this is where it gets really tricky, of course. Sure, put the laws in place, create liability for companies. But at the end of the day, you know, two days before an election, somebody does this. What, you're going to litigate this two years later? I don't right. care. The election right. has been turned. So I think they're necessary, but I don't think they're sufficient. So I think we need the tech companies to do better, and we need education. We need people to start to understand the state of deepfake technology and how to get smarter about this stuff.
1: But if the lies are effective and and if they move as quickly as as they have in the past, then what is the damage that's being done to not only the electorate but just to to, to the whole state of public trust by AI-generated content?
3: Yeah, the word trust is the big one here. So what's happened over the last few years is an erosion of trust in institutions, in the media, that's you, and in scientific experts, that's me. And when we erode trust in the very institutions that we need to reason about a complex and fast-moving world, I think we as a society and a democracy are in a lot of trouble. Because what's going to happen is authoritarian regimes can rise when there is an erosion of trust. Because you say, nope, you can't trust the media, you can't trust the experts, you can't trust the government. Trust me. And that is the ingredients you need for authoritarianism. And I think the other thing that happens here is that when you lose the ability to trust, you check out. You're like, look, I I can't reason about anything. I know what I know. And let's not let facts get in the way of that. And I think that's very dangerous for a democracy.
1: Last month, Fox ran an ad that showed embarrassing footage of former U.S. President Donald Trump, and Trump dismissed it as AI. Do you think that that's something that we're going to be seeing a lot of this year?
3: This is called the liar's dividend. So we've been talking about how actual fake content can be harmful, but there's the other side of the coin is that when we live in a world where things can be faked, well then the liars can say it's a deep fake. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a very dangerous world. And we have seen that liars dividend play out by Donald Trump, by politicians around the world is when they do really get caught on a hot mic saying something inappropriate, they can claim it's fake. And that I would argue is maybe even more dangerous Right. But
1: that's when, that's when the scientists like you come in, right? Yeah. You and your students analyze the that's content. Right. And, and is there a way scientifically to be actually sure if you have the content available to you, if yeah. you have the digital file yeah. that you're dealing with something that's been created by a machine?
2: The
3: answer is yes and no. Like We've gotten pretty good at analyzing audio images and videos. And when we find evidence of manipulation or alteration or generative AI, we can usually say something fairly definitive. Now, whether people believe us, whether we can get that those facts out fast enough to cut off the lies is a different question. What scares me and what worries me is that by the time something hits my desk, it's gone around the world 20 times. Right. And millions of people have typically already seen it. And so by the time I fact check it, it's a good post-mortem, but it may be too late in some ways because millions of eyes have already been set on that content.
1: Is there, an, could there be an upside to this in that the rest of us, the people who are mm-hmm. just trying to absorb information can now have some skepticism about everything we hear. And maybe that's a good thing when yeah. it comes to politics.
3: It, it's a good thing, but it could also go too far. I want a healthy amount of skepticism that when you are seeing things online, slow down, do a little bit of research. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Check your biases at the door. But that's where the, I think the education has to be very nuanced. That Look, these are the things that are possible today. Let's be careful about what we are sharing and resharing online. But let's also not go so far that we become skeptical of everything
1: that we see. Penny, your country goes to the polls in November and the mm. world is watching this election mm. because it says something about the future of democracy, Yes, but it could be decided by one county in yes. Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania. Yeah. How do you expect to convince a campaign not to use every yeah. tool it has to win over those voters?
3: Yeah. When you look at the last few national elections, the difference between one candidate and the other, you can measure in tens of thousands of votes. In fact, we know exactly where those votes are. They're in a handful of states. And not only do we know where they are, our adversaries overseas know where they are. The campaigns know where they are. And they can do these hyper-targeted campaigns to move thousands of votes in a handful of states. And that's the ball game. I don't think you convince the campaigns to do that. We've been playing dirty politics for, for decades. This is just another tool in your ability. I think it's a particularly powerful tool because it's an automation tool and the visual evidence is very compelling. And I think that we've already seen around the world evidence of deep fakes in the elections. And I am sure we will see some aspect of that in our campaign.
1: Hani Farid, thank you very much. We'll speak again, okay? Thanks so much. Hani Farid studies digital forensics and the spread of misinformation at UC Berkeley. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. My thoughts are with the alleged, uh, alleged victim, but it's good to get to the end of this situation. Uh, it's, uh, it's tarnished the image of a hockey candidate. Five members of Canada's 2018 junior hockey team have been directed to surrender to police in London, Ontario, to face charges of sexual assault. The news was reported by the Globe and Mail on Wednesday. The alleged assault was originally investigated and closed. The investigation was then reopened in 2022 after Hockey Canada settled a $3.5 million lawsuit with the alleged victim. That news shook the hockey world, led to the resignation and rebuilding of the Hockey Canada board and raised serious questions about the culture of junior hockey. London police say they will hold a news conference on February 5th to provide more details in the case.
2: And we have credible evidence of the links between Indian agents
1: and the assassination of two Pakistani nationals on Pakistani soil. Pakistan's foreign secretary dropped a bombshell this week, alleging that India is responsible for the assassination of two Pakistani citizens in Pakistan. He went on to say that the killings followed a similar pattern to recent cases in the U.S. and Canada. In September, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau publicly linked Indian intelligence agencies to the death of Canadian Hardeep Singh Najjar. In November, U.S. officials charged an Indian citizen in an alleged plot to assassinate a Sikh separatist on American soil. India has denied the accusations. Still to come on Day 6, it's not just the Suez Canal under pressure. The Panama Canal is critically low on fresh water, and that means a considerable disruption of passages. We'll go to Bogota to find out why.
0: Why do people hate math? Probably because we call it problems, right? That's a horrible name that we tell little children. Fresh out of recess, having a good time. Hey kids, huh, that was fun. Yeah, yeah, huh. Who's ready for problems? Like, no! That's what my parents have. I don't want those
1: problems. That's Sammy Obeyed. He's a stand-up comedian who used to be a math teacher. And as you might imagine, his jokes can be pretty nerdy but his act is not all calculus, especially lately.
0: I never thought I would live to see the day where it's controversial to want peace. I posted that I want a ceasefire. This guy commented, oh, you want a ceasefire? So then you're just four taking hostages? what what a horrible thing to say no i am against taking hostages i want the hostages to come home the israeli hostages to come home and i want the thousands of palestinians being held unjustly in israeli prisons to come home nobody should be held hostage i'm anti-hostage i don't even like having people over to my house i don't like people willingly coming over to my house invited I'm
1: anti-guest. Samuel Bade is also a Palestinian-American, and he's using his stand-up routines as a way to talk about the conflict in Gaza. And he's found an audience. In fact, some of his material on Gaza has been going viral. Samuel Bade, good morning. Welcome to Day 6.
0: Good morning to you. It's I didn't know it was Day 5 yesterday, but thank you. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I know. We're always Day 6, no matter what day we're on. Um, Listen, you're a math nerd and you're also a Palestinian American. Which of those is harder to joke about?
0: Oh, math, for sure. People often say, "Well, you're really brave for talking about the situation in Palestine." And I'm like, "No, trust me, I I talk about calculus."
1: <laughs> but well, talking about what's going on in Gaza, it's it's politically sensitive, but it's also emotionally complicated. It's painful, it's traumatic. Very much. As a comedian, What's your in for that? How do you even begin to approach that?
0: Well, you have to respect people's sensitivities. You know, comedians, we do like the luxury of just being able to talk about whatever we want and and stand up can be a safe space for that. But when it comes to highly polarized or sensitive issues, you're gonna have to respect some of the sensitivities of the audience, whether you like it or not. And, you know, fortunately I am a human and I feel things. And so I'm able to feel these things myself. And so I just kind of reflect how I'm feeling onto how the audience could be feeling and kind of start from there.
1: Sure. And and as a comedian, does the fact that those sensitivities exist? Is that kind of a gift? You you said the tension is good for comedy. Is that tension helpful to you as a comedian?
0: It absolutely is because when you especially when you when you get on a touchy subject and everybody, you know, is is going to be asking like where where is he going with this, you know? Mm-hmm. Everybody's kind of on the edge of their seat mentally. And so when you release it, and you release it in the right way, everybody's surprised. Everybody's like, oh, wow, I didn't see that kind of release coming. And so it, attention is actually kind of a built-in, easy way to, to, to get into humor.
1: Let me play a clip from one of your shows, then, then we'll talk about it. Here sure. it is.
0: So I've always been letting people know I am a proud Palestinian, and I am your friend. I put the pal in Palestinian.
4: We
1: lost four, we lost six, four. So some people in the audience there decide that they had enough and you're counting them going out.
0: Yeah, actually, I actually counted to a hundred, but we cut that part.
1: (laughs) But but are you worried you can't put the audience back together when you start losing that many?
0: Well, yeah, it's, it's a worry, but I, you know, I, I, am about 17 years in now. And so I've, I've walked a lot of people. (laughs) I I wish, I wish I could tally the exact number, but it's probably over a thousand in my career. So, so you, you get used to putting together the broken pieces.
1: Sammy, you talked about how, when you first started performing comedy, it was, there was subject matter that you were afraid to talk about. Mm -hmm. Was there something about making jokes about being Palestinian American that chilled audiences at the beginning or that the way you were telling them chilled them? Or did something change about the way people saw Palestinians?
0: Uh, well, I definitely changed the tone of my humor because, you know, it, admittedly, it was it, when I started doing it, it was a bit apologetic. It was kind of like, hey, I'm Palestinian and I'm friendly. Like that's kind of where the pal mm-hmm. Palestinian joke came from. Mm-hmm. I felt like I had to disarm myself, which looking back, huh. that's ridiculous. Like no one should have to do that. You should be proud of who you are. But at the time, you know, just bringing up being Palestinian in the mid 2000s was a politically charged statement and and the perception of Palestinians had not been the greatest growing up here in the state. So, yeah. So I felt like I had to kind of disarm it. And now it's a little bit more unapologetic. But, you know, if you find yourself endearing to the audience and you do self-deprecating humor, they're always going to jump on board no matter uh, what you
1: say. And you said that when political comedy works, you divide the audience. And then if you're good enough. Yes. You pull them back together, which sounds kind of like Moses. It sounds like you're Moses when I, you say that.
0: I, yes, I, that's how I like to see it. I'm, I'm, I'm parting <laughs> the C. C is for crowd.
1: <laughs> so your posts now, Sammy, are going viral and they are resonating with people. Are there responses that you've gotten that stand out to you?
0: Yeah. I, you know, the most heartwarming response that I've had throughout this whole these whole last few months is, people are saying things like I haven't laughed in three months or I've been crying for the last five weeks straight and seeing your joke finally made me laugh and cheer up. Like that's enough. I don't think I'd really heard that ever in my career about anything. And that's like the highest compliment I could ever ask for.
1: You had a short break in touring after October 7th. And then about 10 days after that, you had shows scheduled and you were back on tour. What have you noticed in the audience since October 7th? Is there a change in the way that they respond to your material.
0: Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's even evolved since October, you know, I I would say in those first few weeks after a lot of people didn't even come out to shows, you know, a lot of people were like, just too depressed to come out or, you know, like, just scared that things were going to be too political. But now I'd say people are like, they want to, you know, they want it to be talked about. They want to hear material on it. So
1: does it do, do you ever worry that something that enormous and unresolved can kind of take over the act?
0: A- absolutely um yeah and, and and it has um uh <laughs> however a lot of people are like specifically coming to hear about it so I, I just feel like i am still kind of like giving the audience what they want although i will say there was people who bought tickets to my show like months prior who were like more into like the math jokes uh, <laughs> and uh yeah i mean i just never disappointed people by not talking about math enough
1: <laughs> uh, let me let me play another clip from youtube listen sure. to this
0: Every time you hear the devastating news coming out of Gaza, you hear this many thousand people have been killed and this many of them are women and children. Every time, and this is horrible, women and children are getting killed. And also, do we not care about men anymore? Do we just stop caring about men? Where are you at, Jordan Peterson? I'm here to say that Palestinian men matter, okay? There is nothing wrong with being a Palestinian man. I tell myself this in the mirror every morning. There is nothing wrong with being a Palestinian man. If you watch the videos coming out of Gaza, every time a bomb drops, you see a neighborhood of Palestinian men rushing to the scene, moving giant rocks, lifting bodies from the rubble and carrying them to safety.
1: All while wearing sandals. Open toe. Open toe. There's a lot in that. In that that series of jokes that you just told. When I watch the clip, there's what looks like a Palestinian man sitting in the front row. Mm -hmm. And as you're talking about having empathy for Palestinian men, he appears to be crying. So, you know, there's an emotional reaction to that joke because you are talking about bringing empathy to someone that's not necessarily recognized during this crisis. Yeah. But what does it feel like? When you're, you're a comedian, you're supposed to make people laugh. You might be making them cry instead.
0: Right. Well, I will say that's the last time I invite my dad to the show. But, <laughs> um, but, but in, in all honesty, yes, I do get a lot of people coming to the show and crying. And, and I'm you know thankfully I do believe that they're they're releasing tears of you know a lot of mixed emotions. Uh, nobody has complained that like oh I ended up just crying instead of laughing. It was more like usually like I didn't know I could cry and laugh at the same time. It's like, a, it's like a new way of laughter that I'm actually now experiencing huh. with crowds and, and, uh, and, and, you know, I think it's good for us. So I'm, I'm, I'm riding with it.
1: You mentioned that the math nerds wish that you were still telling math jokes. But what about you? Would you rather be telling math
0: jokes? <laughs> well, I tell people, hey, I, I say, you know, this is something I've been talking about for years. And, yeah, I'm, I'm good at writing jokes about it. But I don't want to be talking about this. I, would, I, mm. I, I wish that we could just have, you know, peace and solutions in this world. And, and that I could just go to talk about going back to talking about math. And even if that means that, uh, you know, half the crowd's going to leave, I, I would rather have peace and math than, uh, than have to be talking about this. You know, it would be nice to be going back to linear algebra again, a little bit.
1: Sammy, have fun in Vancouver. Thank you very much. It was great to meet you. Thank
0: you so much, Brian. I appreciate it.
1: Samuel Bade is a Palestinian American stand-up comedian and former math teacher. He's playing a show in Vancouver tonight, January twenty-seventh, and on April 20th, he'll be in Toronto.
4: Now, the Red Sea continues to be on red alert. The U.S. military has carried out two more strikes in Yemen, claiming to have destroyed two Houthi anti-ship missiles aimed at the Red Sea. The pressure on this key maritime
1: route has deepened. This week, the United States and Great Britain continued military strikes in Yemen, targeting sites, they say, are controlled by Houthi rebels. For the past three months, Houthi forces have carried out dozens of attacks on vessels around the Red Sea. And they're causing a major disruption to the Suez Canal, one of the most important shipping routes in the world.
3: The volume of shipping that goes through the Suez Canal has declined. So compared to a year ago, um, the volume of shipping that is currently transiting the Suez is roughly half.
1: As it turns out, the Suez Canal isn't the only major shipping route experiencing disruptions. Halfway around the world, the Panama Canal is facing its own crisis, this one brought on by drought and climate change. Mia Dahl is a freelance journalist based in Latin America. She's in Bogota, Colombia. Mia, good morning. Welcome to day six.
5: Good morning, friend.
1: How important or how how significant is the Panama Canal? When we're talking about international shipping
5: yeah so the panama canal is really one of two key shipping shortcuts in the world you have the panama canal and the suez canal and there's about five percent of seaborne world trade that goes through the panama canal so it's the equivalent of about almost Three hundred billion U.S. dollars worth of cargo every year, and when you look regionally, it also plays a very important role. It around forty percent of U.S. container traffic goes through the canal, so so regionally, it's it's very important too.
1: Very important to the supply chains in North America. But how has how has transiting through the Panama Canal changed this year? If if I want to get my ship across to the other side. How much more difficult is it now to do that?
5: Yeah, it's become a lot more difficult because what's happened is that there's this drought that has really disrupted the way the canal works. Uh, and that means that the Panama Canal Authority has had to basically slash the amount of ships that it lets through the canal in half. So before the crisis, it led through around 38, 36 ships a day. And now in February, it's expected to go down to 18 ships a day. Um, and that means that when shippers are thinking about what to do, they can either wait in line, or they can wait to skip the queue, or they can reroute uh, through much, much uh, more difficult routes.
1: Right. So, so the the, the cost to to, to shippers is, is enormous if they decide they're going to skip the, the the Panama Canal route. But why is it important for fresh water to be available in Panama for the canal to function?
5: That's Basically, because of the way the Panama Canal works is that it uh, has these nearby reserves that leads fresh water into a set of locks that are then used to like lift and lower ships through the canal. Um, and to do that, the canal needs massive amounts of water. It takes around uh, 52 million gallons of water to just let a single ship through. To put that into perspective, that's around 80 uh, olympic sized swimming pools or the equivalent of what half a million Panamanians would uh, consume in a in a day so it's massive amount of uh, fresh water that it takes to you know uh, lift and lower these shifts uh, and that fresh water basically goes right out into the ocean
1: and the rainy season in panama is, is is April to November. But how much less precipitation was there last year compared to previous years to, to refill the reservoirs and lakes?
5: It's been a lot less. Panama is usually a very rainy country, one of the most rainy countries in the world. But uh, this past year, it's been very dry. In October, we saw 41% less precipitation than usual. And then in December, uh, the Lake Gatun, which is the lake that provides the most water into the canal, uh, was at record low levels. So so it's quite dramatic.
1: So it's been a bad year, but d- is it because of El Nino or is this being made worse by longer term climate change?
5: Yeah, those things are actually quite interrelated, but there's no doubt that a strong El Nino this uh, past year uh, has really been a key driver in this. So El Nino is this uh, reoccurring uh, weather phenomena that's occurs every two to seven years and it's associated with higher ocean temperatures, but also with a displacement of trade winds that would otherwise have brought more rainfall to tropical countries like Panama or to Colombia, where I sit right now, where El Nino um, has also been very strong and means that there's record high temperatures in in many tropical Latin American countries. And we see lots of forest fires and we see droughts like uh, what's happening in Panama right now.
1: The canal is such a critical part of what Panama is and has become. It's it's, It's one of the symbols of Panamanian identity. What are the tensions in Panama in terms of facing this crisis over the canal and this uncertainty about its future?
5: Yeah, that's right. Panama is definitely a canal country, and um, the canal plays such an important role, not only in national identity, but also for the economy, of course. So this is very important, and it creates a lot of tensions when the canal is not working well. One of the main tensions that we see right now is like this conscience about the scarcity of water because Panama has been used to living in an abundance of water. Panamanians consume much more water than most countries, actually 2.5 times more than the world average. And Mm. so in that sense, they've been used to this abundance and now suddenly uh, they have this wake up call that water is a very scarce resource. And this is only reinforced by events from last year where uh, Panama was paralyzed by protests related to, to mining actually to a Canadian mining company called First Quantum mm-hmm. uh, which ha- has this uh, local subsidiary called Mineria Panama and this local mine, uh, copper mine was granted a concession to to run for the next 20 years at least and that created uh, huge tensions in the population protests and a big part of that was of course related to the environmental destruction that can come with mining people went to the streets saying that it's a a uh, canal country, not a mining country. Mm. And they were really concerned about how mining will also use a lot of uh, water, a uh, resource that now uh, appears to be more uh, scarce than before. Those tensions remain and remain very high as the canal is not working well. And especially as one of the solutions to this problem is for Panama to actually dig through a mountain and lead more uh, water from the India River into the reservoirs Mm -hmm. to provide the canal with more water. And that project would mean flooding of biodiverse jungles. It would mean destroying some communities, which of course also puts even more tensions uh, onto both the Panama Canal Authority and the government as we head into elections in May.
1: But right now, with the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal, both experiencing significant problems. What is the impact on world trade if these crises are not resolved?
5: Uh, One very obvious impact is that the cost of shipping is rising. That means uh, higher prices for consumers in an already high inflationary environment, but it, it can also mean Uh, consolidation of the shipping industry because eventually it's only the biggest uh, shippers that are able to afford these costs. So Mm. we've seen huge consolidation in the shipping industry over the past decades already, but this could really accelerate that tendency. And then another tendency that we've been seeing is the tendency of nearshoring. And that's this idea that you move production closer to its market. So for example, production from China could move to Canada, Mexico, or the US itself. And those tendencies can be accelerated as well as the cost of shipping rises, then local production becomes more attractive. So so it can have quite a wide consequences.
1: So there's forest fires in Colombia and the level of the Panama Canal is is dangerously low. Is there any sign of rain on the horizon down there?
5: There will be rain, but uh, the issue right now is uh, that the levels of these reserves are just very low and things are set to get only worse, actually, especially for Panama, because they're heading into dry season. So right now, things will actually only get worse.
1: Mia Dal, thank you very much for being with us.
5: Thank you, Brent.
1: Mia Dal is a freelance journalist based in Latin America. Still to come on day six, Christopher Rothko remembers his dad, Mark Rothko, and tells about the Canadian connection in a major Rothko retrospective.
3: Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. He
0: ranted with racist language?
3: Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe
1: my memory.
3: Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With Episodes Weekly... Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. You can listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, and we're available wherever you get your podcasts, and at cbc.ca slash day6.
5: Loud budgeting is a new concept I'm introducing for 2024.
2: It's the opposite of quiet luxury. It's not, I don't have enough, it's, I
1: don't want to spend. That's TikToker Lucas Battle explaining a new trend he calls loud budgeting. It's about being open and transparent when it comes to what
2: you spend. I think the most important thing I've learned is that if you are working on a budget, be loud about it. You know what's absolutely terrifying? Putting all of your finances out online for other people to judge and make assumptions about. Yeah, here I am doing it.
1: But this style of financial transparency isn't exactly new for some content creators.
2: It resonated with me because I'm like, oh, this is kind of everything that I'm already doing.
1: Riley O'Connor is a Canadian content creator. She came across Loud Budgeting after After she'd already built a following by sharing videos of what she calls her unesthetic and budget friendly life. She posted videos of her couponing and doing budget breakdowns and making grocery runs and found those videos were resonating with a lot of people. And she says introducing the new term loud budgeting has encouraged more people to start an open conversation about their finances and ditch societal expectations on spending.
2: Loud budgeting to me is just essentially being open and honest about your income. And I like to kind of say on TikTok, and my followers like to say as well, um, acting your pay wage is <laughs> not trying to live a life that you know is not really attainable for you. So looking into our finances and seeing where we can save some money and where we can maybe spend a little bit extra, changing our habits around. And that's just why I like to share it on TikTok because people can relate and it just builds a sense of community and a safe space for myself and others. I live a humble life, and I know that sounds cliche, but welcome to the honest side of TikTok. I love my job, but it's definitely not the best-paying job out there. I cook most of my meals at home, and I love it. I experiment with new... Essentially, I was just scrolling around TikTok, and I couldn't necessarily relate to a lot of the larger creators on TikTok. So I just said, I'm just going to show my life as an underpaid early childhood educator and what that kind of looks like. And my first video was just a little $20 outfit haul and after I posted that, it kind of just went viral within 24 hours and I thought, oh, I can't believe this is resonating with people, so I just continued to film the things that I do day to day as a regular, as I like to say, budget-friendly girl. There's a couple discount grocery outlets around me that I started to post at and everyone was saying, oh, I wish we had those here, these should be everywhere. Even if they make less than me, even if they make more than me, there's things that they can relate to. And what I do to practice loud budgeting would be simple things that I already did enjoy regardless, like couponing and thrifting before I make big purchases, seeing if I can find a secondhand first but then I had to look a little bit deeper and I realized I was spending $70 a month on a gym membership that I never went to so I definitely had to cut that out. So it really just started with actually looking into those pink statements and seeing that I was just spending way too much on online shopping, way too much taking out food. Those were the biggest things, the like almost the extracurricular activities, I say. Loud budgeting is just looking at those tiny little increments and realizing that they do add up and having to adjust those wherever you can. Thank you. Here is the receipt. Every little bit does help because that was a $25 gift card, which you might think that's not very much, but it was $90.57. The- if, to me, sharing that, I think it just feels empowering because it just shows that you're in control. You're not being dictated by society on telling you what you need to buy by the trends. And I think by sharing it, it just holds me accountable as well because I know other people are able to relate to me. And if someone that they're watching online has who has a large following can live this way, then they can as well. It's kind of crazy. And I always say it's insane that people enjoy me wa- shopping at Dollarama or other discount stores because it's just something that I do but obviously people resonate with things like that trying to find bargains first. It's just an extremely supportive side of TikTok. I think people practicing loud budgeting have a lot to gain. Holding themselves accountable, the confidence, not having that burden on their shoulders to be someone that they're not anymore and just living true to themselves Being open, honest with your family and friends when it comes to Christmas, it takes that entire pressure off um, because you know what you can and you can't afford. I think it really just comes with having a huge burden off of your shoulders. You're not trying to live up to anyone. You're not trying to live a life that's not yours. You're not pretending anymore. You're your full self. And when you're transparent about that, you don't have anything to lose. that's it for today guys not a huge grocery haul i honestly thought i needed more then i got in there i was like oh i have that i have that i have that thanks for watching you guys my spirits are much higher now and you're gonna see more videos from me coming soon
1: riley o'connor is a content creator and early childhood educator in oshawa ontario
4: Number one, White and Red by Mark Rothko, Uh, I think the first thing you have to discuss is its imposing size. Um, So when I'm standing in front of it, relatively close up to the surface of the painting, as Rothko uh, intended it, It completely fills my field of vision. Uh, The painting is is immersive. It's really quite uh, an emotional
1: experience. That's Adam Welsh, Associate Curator of Modern Art at the Art Gallery of Ontario. He's talking about American painter Mark Rothko's Number One White and Red, 1962. It was acquired by the AGO the same year it was painted, a little over 60 years ago.
4: The ground of the painting is black. It's quite uh, matte. And on this black ground are floating three rectangular shapes. And these shapes are stacked one on top of the other. And the top shape uh, is white. The middle, which is the largest, is red. And then the bottom rectangle is brown. Um, There's something kind of mysterious or almost magical about how these shapes appear to float against this black surface.
1: That painting, number one white and red 1962, is currently in Paris as part of a huge Rothko exhibition being held by the Fondation Louis Vuitton. The exhibition runs until April. It includes 115 Rothko paintings. It is one of the most comprehensive Rothko exhibitions ever staged. Christopher Rothko is Mark Rothko's son and one of the co-curators of the exhibition. Christopher Rothko, good morning. Welcome to the program.
4: Good morning. Very happy to meet you, Brent.
1: What did it mean for you to see your father's number one, white and red, 1962, make the journey from the Art Gallery of Ontario to the Fondation Louis Vuitton exhibition in Paris?
4: When we began planning this exhibition nearly five years ago, this was immediately one of my priorities. Uh, I had seen it only in storage in the AGO. I'd never seen it on the wall just through, uh, I think, bad luck with the timing of my visits to Toronto. But it had always um, held a very special place, not just in my uh, heart, but in my imagination of how spectacular uh, it could look uh, amongst its cousin Rothko's (laughs) in an exhibition. And indeed, it, um, it's the first thing you see when you walk into the room that works in the 1960s. And it's very hard to leave that spot. As soon as you walk in, it just commands your attention and, and draws you in.
1: And what is your personal relationship with it? Because you've said it's among your favorites. My father's paintings in the
4: 1950s, which are, tend to be uh, brighter in color, uh, or lighter in color, I should say, because they're never truly bright, but um, they are often better known. But I actually think his greatest paintings happen in the 1960s people think that he uh, has sort of a formula of two or three rectangles and he puts different colors together and there you have a Rothko. But in fact, I've come to appreciate over the years how every painting is an experiment in form, an experiment in color, but particularly in materials and communication. Mm. And this painting, although nominally dark because the background is a deep, deep, like 82% cocoa chocolate uh, with another brown rectangle, but it has a, a brilliant red and then this mysterious white rectangle at the top And the the luminescence of this painting is remarkable. It sort of speaks to that sense uh, from out of darkness uh, comes the light. I just find it tremendously moving. I find myself really, as I said, transfixed every time I I step in front of it.
1: Well, the AGO appear to be delighted that it is part of this earth-shattering show in Paris. And you you mentioned that the the show took five years to put together. How close is the exhibition to what you imagined it would be or, or could be when you first started working on it? Uh, when I first started
4: working on the exhibition, I, I had thought that we might do uh, something more modest, and I was informed by my uh, co-curators and colleagues at the Foundation Louis Vuitton that they always install the entire museum when they're doing an exhibition, and I huh. uh, I thought that was very exciting, but I was, frankly, um, concerned that we would get uh, more than 100 paintings, but in fact, uh, a lot of perseverance and goodwill from uh, both museum and museum partners and private collectors has brought not just a remarkable group of paintings, but a lot of paintings that no one will have seen before, particularly Europeans. I I was very intent on finding paintings from uh, less traveled places. Uh, I wanted to make sure that this was really a complete refresh for viewers who may have seen other retrospectives uh, with a lot of the same paintings. And uh, no, I wanted them to get a whole new idea of what Rothko could be.
1: And what is it like for you? Have you ever been surrounded by so many of your father's major works? I've been surrounded
4: by uh, this many before and other exhibitions that had fabulous works, but I do think there's a special alchemy uh, that happens gallery by gallery. If you go to the Fondation Louis Vuitton, it is uh, a series of separate galleries. Mm -hmm. So it's a journey between spaces, and each one has its own unique story to tell. And each one is remarkably powerful. And I, I understood this midway through the installation process when every morning I would come in and a different gallery would be my favorite, and a different one I would <laughs> be convinced had the most, uh, the most to say. And I recognized that in each one, uh, we had uh, managed to collect works and install them in a way that um, just gave them absolutely full voice and the greatest uh, possibility of communicating with
1: the viewer. Christopher, there's music in, in some of these galleries, a blast of Mozart in, in one of them. As co-curator, why music and why Mozart?
4: So uh, I lost my father at a very early age. I was only six years old, but, uh, and we never really discussed painting, although he set up some paper for me to mess around with in his studio. <laughs> but but uh, from the earliest moments, I mean, literally from like the age of two, we were talking about music, and he was playing music for me. It was something that clearly affected him on an emotional level quite a bit. Uh, he has a famous quote that he wanted to raise art to the level of poignancy of music and poetry. Mm-hmm. And music is really what um, you know, sort of captures our innermost selves, the things that we can't put into words. And I, I think that's really what he's trying to do in his painting. But uh, having the example of music, and particularly his beloved Mozart, uh, I think it was a continual inspiration for him to hit that level of communicating in the most poignant way possible.
1: Do you see or do you observe Mozart is there a formal relationship
4: uh, yes i do i think i do think the primary relationship is formal in a, a, a tremendous simplicity of means uh, mozart uses just the absolute uh, minimum he needs to uh, produce maximal effect. And uh, although I would not call my father a minimalist, because mm-hmm. that also, I think, implies a certain emotional reticence. That's certainly not true with Rothko, mm-hmm. certainly not true with Mozart, but to use those essential building blocks to create something that has, a, if you will, a classical impact, you know, the simplicity of a Greek temple that uh, yet moves people through you know, millennia at this point.
1: Christopher, you mentioned that, that some of these works come from private collections. And it's been said that no public institution would have the resources to present the program that the Fondation has been able to do. The monetary value of the work is estimated at $3 billion. The insurance costs alone are unfathomable, but someone is paying them. What do you think your father would think of all that?
4: I think, although my father was very clear that, uh... He wanted to be able to make a living as an artist, which he was not able to do until quite late in his career. He, he taught uh, throughout most of his career and loved teaching, but uh, also yearned to be in the studio every day. Mm-hmm. So he was very clear that uh, the commerce of art was something that he had to attend to. Uh, and yet the the fact that the work has been associated with such tremendous value at this point, huge dollar signs, uh, ridiculous numbers. And I, I think it would have been a distraction for him mm. because for him, it's also about, uh, a soulful communication between an artist and a viewer. And if they're thinking about how much this painting is worth all that time, uh, yes, I think he would see that as, as a distraction to what uh, he was trying to achieve. I, I would like to think that this exhibition, um, I hope that the experience in those galleries uh, overwhelms uh, the commercial piece of, of putting on an exhibition like this.
1: Well, he he was quite articulate about the way he wanted his paintings to be presented in, and even the way that they should appear in a gallery, was he not?
4: Yes. He was very um, conscious that his works, because they were on one level so simple, uh, could very easily be reduced to wallpaper. And he was conscious of what, uh, what sort of um, techniques in installing the work would give them maximal impact on the viewer. So he always wanted them hung low. They're not an icon. They're not a trophy on the wall. They're something that the viewer should confront face-to-face. It's always an interaction he's looking for. Uh, and again, with lighting, he was always turning down the lights in the gallery. He wanted them to glow from within rather than be shined on from without. Um, the magic really happens because there is this uncanny incandescence that comes from w- within the works.
1: You've mentioned now in the interview that, that you were six years old when your father died and that music was one of the bonds that you had between you. But your sister Kate was 19 when he died. Does she share memories of him with you? Did she, do you think she has a... Better understanding of who he was because of that personal connection
4: absolutely. I rely on her memory quite a bit, particularly because uh, we lost our mother just just six months after so we we don 't have a reliable source of, of memories other than hers. Um, but yes, my sister has um, told me many stories or, or often confirmed things for me that I had sort of intuited um, from working with the artwork, but she could uh, at least in some cases. Uh, confirm or deny that, um, you know, what I was seeing in the painting was actually something that might have been going on in the studio. Mm. Not that my father shared a lot of his process uh, at home, it Mm. was really, that was sort of his private space. And although my mother was an artist, he really kept that uh, studio world largely to himself.
1: What is the greatest misconception about Mark Rothko? And how do you think this show at the Fondation could address that?
4: there, there, there are a couple. I had mentioned one already that there's sort of this formula that he adopts. And uh, I actually was just having a, a conversation with an art conservator this morning uh, as she is looking at seven paintings in the collection of her museum and seeing how even though they're only five years apart, each one of them is constructed entirely differently and she's trying to understand what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So that, that sense of constant experimentation and questing is so important. Uh, the other is that... Um, People have this idea that uh, he paints light paintings early and dark paintings later, and the dark paintings are just an expression of depression. And the, the truth of the matter is he, he, he does. I mean, the, the earlier paintings are on the whole lighter and the later paintings are on the whole darker, but it's by no means linear. It's no, by no means a one-to-one correlation. And uh, we, we just mounted a, a beautiful uh, Works on Paper show at the National Gallery in Washington, which has these just resplendent, light-colored works from the very end of his career. So it's, it's never an easy linear understanding with my father. He's always seeking new ways to communicate. And honestly, he made, it, made the viewer work harder as, as his career went on. He made you put more of yourself into that interaction. Uh, but it's not necessarily an expression of depression. It's an expression of um, seeking, I think, seeking light in darker places.
1: Well, Christopher, the Art Gallery of Ontario says that in the spring, when, when number one white and red 1962 returns from Paris, they will prominently display that painting to the public. So for those who have never stood before this painting, what would you say to encourage them to come and see it? I,
4: I think that if they, um, if they allow themselves a little time to talk to this painting, uh, it will uh, give them a, a very full embrace. It, it, it's 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 beautiful to look at, but it's also a place to really lose yourself. I, I talk at you. At Rothko paintings is a place that you lose yourself and find yourself again. Um, you know, I, I think you will be find yourself being absorbed into this mysterious white area, and and you'll go on a journey and. Um, if you're open to the experience, you're not necessarily sure where you're going to come out. But at the end, it will still be you. <laughs> but uh, maybe maybe a way of looking at yourself that you hadn't looked at in a while. Or maybe a little way of looking at the world. They're, they're, they're suggestions of, uh, of another way to think about our lives. And uh, I, I think this one is a particularly rich opportunity to do that.
1: Christopher Rothko, thank you so much for being our guest.
4: Thank you. Really appreciate it.
1: Christopher Rothko is Mark Rothko's son and one of the co-creators of the Fondation Louis Vuitton's exhibition in Paris. The Art Gallery of Ontario will feature their Rothko number no. one white and red nineteen sixty-two upon its return from Paris as part of their upcoming Moments in Modernism exhibition in May of this year.
4: I'm
1: and here we go with riff from the headlines it's our weekly quiz three riffs linked by one story in the news if you guess the story that links to those riffs you could win a day six tote bag first here's a recap this is last week's clue
2: who let the dogs out hold it, hold it.
1: Brian and don't bite the hand that feeds you. Fontella Bass with "Rescue Me" and the Baha Men with "Who Let the Dogs Out?" And Karen Collins of Ottawa correctly guessed the headline that we were looking for: "Bob the Dog Fights Back as Firefighter Rescues Him from a Frozen Pond." Congratulations, Karen! A D6 tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Don't bite the mailman. Now here's this week's clue.
5: Just like butter.
3: You can't can't roost too high for me Chicken, chicken Come on out of the tree
1: Looking for the story that connects those riffs? Email us your answer, put riff from the headlines in the subject, and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. And you can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6.
0: Time, weather, and riff right
4: from the headlines.
0: Ah,
2: yeah!
1: And that's our show for this week. Day six was produced by Lori Allen, McKenna Hadley-Book, Sarah Melton, and Pedro Sanchez. Our intern is Ishita Chopra. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott, And I'm Brent Bamber. It's one day to Finland's presidential election. Two days till Canada's parliament resumes sitting. And seven days till we meet again on day six.
4: What a bunch of malarkey.